Good afternoon, London. I'm going to say that Tuesday afternoon is looking a lot better outside than Monday afternoon did. We've got partly cloudy skies. We're seeing the blue peeking through, lots of sunshine. People out there walking along Wellington with their sunglasses on. Ugh, this is what I'm talking about. So a little bit cooler than we would like to see at this time of year, but it bodes well for the rest of the week. I'm also feeling a little warm. I just ran from down the hall, trying to cool off a little as we start the show. I will say that Tuesday has been, it's really been off to a good start. We started the day in the newsroom with free pizza from Pizza Nova. Oh, <laughs> producer extraordinaire Andrew Graham just took a bite of his pizza from Pizza Nova right across the, the window from me in the, the glass booth on the other side. It was timely. It's almost like he planned that. I don't even know. <laughs> He's always thinking. But that's courtesy of Pizza Nova because they have a special on today where if you buy a medium pizza, it's for a great price. And I believe part of it's going to charity as well. I'm going to bring you more details on that in a little bit. Uh, but you'll probably see lots of posts from the crew here at Chorus Radio London talking about Pizza Nova and how delicious those pizza pies have been very well, very much appreciated. I will say that if you want to see a bunch of journalists and news people and radio people run, tell them there is free food in the kitchen (laughs) or you're putting it out in their common area uh, because that is always, always appreciated. We, We love our are tasty treats that are brought in from lovely organizations, especially when it's for a good cause like Pizza Nova is doing today. So I'll bring you more details about that uh, probably after one of our next breaks. But I will also say there was a bit of good news on social media today. Well, early, early this morning, I believe that Craig Eagles talked about this, and obviously it's been in the news today, uh, that there was a an Amber Alert early, early this morning for uh, a little boy who was originally in the Sudbury area and they thought he was on his way to Toronto, possibly with uh, a a female suspect. Um, Thankfully, this little guy was found. Everything is good. So that's excellent news. Great to hear that from the authorities. Uh, And it obviously it touched off uh, a a firestorm again on social media of people uh, not liking getting those alerts. And I think, come on, it's a little kid that is missing Let's put our gripes to the side about a notification going off. It's a little kid. Now, there were obviously lots of great things that came from that alert. People sent in tips. So that's the good side of the social media. The bad side were the complaints, which are totally off base. Um, But the good stuff was that there were tips that came in. In this case, I don't know if the Amber Alert directly helped to find the little guy. But in two previous cases, tips from the public when those alerts went out helped to find the children that were missing. So these Amber Alerts do work and they somewhat inspire the best of social media, the potential that it has. Obviously, it brings out a little bit of the bad stuff when people get to be a little bit trolly and they start complaining about the alerts, but we'll put that to the side for now. The other thing about social media that we were talking about in the newsroom today uh, is, you know, we've had, now stay with me, this is a bit of a jump, but over the last few days, we've had some violent incidents in the city. Saturday, there was like a drive-by shooting. Uh, There was also a fatal assault up on Connaught Avenue. Then we had another domestic incident that happened on Sunday morning, early, early at a hotel in the south end of the city. Um, You know, so there have been some pretty not nice headlines that seem to have like amplified just because you're seeing them on a lot of social media channels. People are reposting. uh, And and there just was a bad weekend. You know, we had a 
a, a volume of of these incidents. And sometimes that makes us feel like, oh, gosh, what's the world coming to? What's London coming to? Well, I think that that's a bit uh, amplified by social media and the posting and, and how available the information is rather than the actuality of, of violence being on the rise in the city. Because stats show it's, it's really not. Now, to talk a little bit more about those cases, uh, we have Detective Inspector Paul Bastine, and he's in charge of the support branch within the Criminal Investigations Division at London Police. And he joins us now to talk about these cases and also, you know, how we feel about them in the London area. Detective Inspector Bastine, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jess. So obviously it has been a very, well, I mean, it's always busy for London police officers because they're always out working hard, looking, uh, investigating things that are happening in the community. But especially in the last five days or so, we've had a number of incidents that perhaps are a little bit more violent than usual that we hear about. Um, we had three cases where we had a shooting uh, up in, in, in one area of the city. Then there was a, a fatal incident of assault and another serious incident of assault involving a domestic case. Um, I guess tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, first of all, these cases, none of these are connected, correct? That's correct. So I guess the only connection between them is the fact that they all occurred, uh, sorry, all occurred in relatively close uh, proximity time-wise to each other. Um, Aside from that, uh, they're all uh, unique and completely unrelated. Um, You mentioned the the shooting incident uh, on, uh, which occurred on the um, on Saturday, uh, the first of the incidents, which I think was um, <clears throat> recognized not only by us, but by, pe- by people in the community who heard about it as a pretty shocking event. Um, thankfully, the individual injured received non-life-threatening injuries. Um, the other two incidents um, are, uh, uh, again, um, assaults, but uh, aside, from the, aside from that, uh, unrelated. I guess, too, that, um, you know, as the community hears about these things, like you said, when where the shooting took place, it was shocking. These are out of the norm incidents um, and it, it puts people a little bit on edge. Um, is there anything, you know, that London police would like uh, residents to know in terms of maybe offering a little bit of comfort or uh, a bomb to soothe some of that worry? Yeah, I think I think by and large, uh, for the most part, we're quite fortunate Um not only in the city of London, but elsewhere in the province and across Canada, really, uh, to live in, in safe communities. Certainly, London is a safe community. Um, it's not without its own uh, issues from time to time. Um, as long as there are people to get into disputes, there will be uh, arguments and certainly, unfortunately, uh, violence occasionally. Um, we do what we can to uh, prevent it. Um, there's all sorts of people in the, in the uh, community, our community partners, different agencies who uh, each play a role in preventing uh, violence. Um, however, when when violence does occur, it's to, it falls to us to investigate and to uh, to bring the offenders to justice. So, um, in terms of people's um, you know peace of mind, but I, I can I just want to reiterate the fact that um, these incidents, although they all occurred in close proximity uh, time wise to each other, um, are, are unrelated and really um, if there's no cause. Um, you know, to, to be to be concerned. Um, not to say that the, the cases individually are not concerning because the aid to the circumstances in the case are. And in one case, we have an individual who's lost his life. <clears throat> Another uh, woman who um, is, is still in hospital in critical condition as a result of an assault from somebody uh, known to her, close to her, uh, which itself is tragic. In the other case, um, 
an, uh, an individual driving around the city of London uh, assaulted uh, in a shooting by somebody not known to him. It's true, and, and you know, I, I think it is a good point that, uh, you know, we keep pointing to, uh, not to overuse that word, uh, the fact that they are not uh, not related at all. But you're, you're quite right in terms of the, um, the severity of these cases is concerning, uh, but it's good to keep it in perspective in terms of what the connections are, the contributing factors, things of that nature. We had a discussion in the newsroom earlier in which I mentioned off the top uh, about how sometimes social media and, um, you know, just reporting in general, when there are clusters of incidents, sometimes it sounds like more of a of a problem perhaps than it actually is if you were to put things into context. Um, you know, when I'm putting together a newscast, generally that's my, my usual yeah. job Monday to Friday, um, you know, we often group stories that are themed uh, the, the same. You know, you put them together because that works well in a, in a section together. But for everyday listeners, uh, you know, sometimes that's overwhelming and they think, oh, my goodness, things are things are just, you know, not going well here in the city when that's that's not true at all. Like it is it is a matter of context. It's 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 how things are presented sometimes. Right. I think I think you're right. You mentioned social media a minute ago there. And I think um as as much of as as beneficial as it can be to us, um, either as individual members of community or um, the police, in terms of uh, obtaining information from members of the public. When I think when news gets out, um, when news of an event gets out on social media, I think uh, uh, there's a real potential for people to maybe jump to conclusions or to uh, uh, to maybe ruminate on things. Um, without knowing all the facts, and uh, I, I think there's some danger in that. Um, and and uh, one of the things that's you know challenging for us is um, not controlling the information, but doing our due diligence to ensure that we're investigating things uh, thoroughly and uh, adequately before we we release uh, much information. So in, in 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 the case of the most recent incident, you, um, we did release some information, and I expect that we will be releasing more later today. Um, however, uh, I think people become accustomed to um, getting information quickly, almost immediately, uh, with social media, and uh, we have a job to do to make sure that we um, uh, we're going to investigate cases in such a way that if charges are warranted, that ultimately they'll they'll stand up in court and that uh, offenders are are uh, held to account. Absolutely. And it's it goes hand in hand, right? Because local media, uh, you know, we also have a responsibility to report responsibly and make sure that we're not putting conjecture out into into the universe, into the social media universe even. Uh, so it, it goes hand in hand. It's it's a real uh, partnership in terms of making sure that the public uh, is kept abreast of information that they need and that they want and uh, that they're entitled to in some cases, uh, but making sure that it's done responsibly. So um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a partnership in some ways, and it's also obviously incumbent upon the public to use critical thinking skills too, and uh, you know, look at the source of of information where they're hearing it from. If it's hearsay from a neighbor down the block, oh, I heard X Y Z. It's like, well, let's take that with a grain of salt until we have information from from the authorities, you know, to before we jump to any conclusions. Yeah, that, that's 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 true, and I and I'd appreciate um, the point you made there about the partnership. I think. Uh, we do appreciate, uh, in a case like this, uh, the um, fact that uh, you know you're looking at this, or you, you, I think you agree that you see this. Um, uh, there's there's potential for alarm, um, and certainly as a, as a as a media outlet, the potential that or the role that you have to play uh, in in sort of 
helping that maybe help help the public decide what's what's really going on. And uh, I think you know you talk about responsibility, and, and we do appreciate the help. I think one of the things that we benefit from is when we try to get information out. In the case in particular, uh, you know, we, we always we are always looking for, for information about outstanding cases, but the one in particular, uh, the shooting from Saturday, is one there where we we did the media releases, we we uh, appealed for information, and we're thankful that. Uh, uh, certainly, you know, your listeners, readers of other publications in the city, social media, et cetera, have been quick to um, to provide us with, with information through phone calls and, and, and information uh, transferred to us through other means. So, um, yeah, that, that partnership aspect is important. Absolutely. Well, Detective Inspector Paul Bastien, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you uh, taking some moments to chat with us. We know that obviously you're very busy. There are a lot of active investigations on the go. So thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Jess. Okay. We need to take a quick break on London Live. But when we come back, we're still talking social media with Carmi Levy. Hello and welcome back to the program. So we're staying with the social media theme for another segment. Let me ask you, do you use WhatsApp? Social messaging service that's owned by Facebook. Gosh, what isn't these days? <laughs> well, there's a lot of things that aren't owned by them, but they do have quite a section on the market there. But WhatsApp has been, uh, I guess, a victim, if you will, of a, of a hack So Facebook, which owns WhatsApp, urged its users to upgrade to the latest version of its popular messaging app following a report that users could be vulnerable to having malicious spyware installed on the phones without their knowledge. WhatsApp, guess how many people use it? By one and a half billion people a month. (laughs) And it's popular because of its high level of security and privacy. The messages on the platform are encrypted end to end. Now, I have WhatsApp, but I I haven't used it in a really long time. I just keep it as a backup method of uh, messaging, just in case you need it. Um, But yeah, it's it's a bit a bit uh, scary to think that there's been this kind of a hack on a service that is so trusted. Also, um, Facebook, the op-ed that came out last week from the co-founder, Chris Hughes. We're going to talk about that. And to do all of this, we have local London-based tech analyst Carmi Levy on the line. Carmi, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Great to be here with you, Jeff. So we are talking about uh, two issues, but we'll start with the first. Let's talk about what's up with WhatsApp. Is that too cutesy for this situation? Because it it sounds (laughs) like it's a pretty serious breach going on right now. It is, and it's a great question to ask because really WhatsApp has long been known as the most secure messaging app out there. It has what we like to call end-to-end encryption, meaning if uh, someone tries to pick off your messaging between you and the person that you're communicating with, all they're going to see is gibberish. And so people use WhatsApp uh, in places where maybe there's not so much democracy, maybe where they're worried about the government spying on them. Um, they've seen it as a secure alternative. And uh, what we're hearing now is that, uh, is that they've discovered a vulnerability in it uh, that was programmed by an Israeli hacker-for-hire company uh, that uh, implants malicious spyware on your device by simply someone calling you in WhatsApp, using the phone feature in WhatsApp. So you don't even have to pick it up. Someone rings you up in WhatsApp, now you've got malware on your device, and they can listen or track anything that you say or do. That's frightening. That's a pretty powerful form of attack. Uh, It affects potentially 1.5 billion people, which is kind of frightening. But the good news is, uh, according to the data, only a few dozen people were actually attacked And there's an update to the app that's available now. So all of us who use WhatsApp, and I'm included, I'm sure many of our listeners are, 
just have to go to the App Store, whether it's uh, Google Play for Android or app at the App Store for iOS, and update the app, and that fixes the problem, you'll no longer be vulnerable. Okay, so my next question then, because you've answered a, a lot of them about this um, already, so kudos to you. You're just knocking them out of the park there, Carmi. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is then, if someone was uh, hacked, like, will they know about it? Does WhatsApp send out a notification about this? Uh, like, how will someone know, essentially, or are they kind of in blissful ignorance right now and they should just go update their phone? Yeah, uh, don't even take the time to determine that by the numbers, because only a few dozen people were actually attacked. Chances are you're fine. Chances are you have not been compromised. All they discovered, the term they like to use is vulnerability. In other words, they've discovered a weakness in the app that allows this kind of attack to happen. But the actual attack has not happened to all of us. And so even if you were attacked, you probably wouldn't know it. You might notice some weird things on your phone. Every attack is different. Um, but in this case, the good news is, is we're probably fine. I looked at my phone. There was no evidence of strange activity. Um, my battery wasn't running down quickly. I wasn't sending messages to people I didn't know. I wasn't getting requests from people that I didn't know. Um, it didn't look like it was behaving any differently today than it was yesterday or before. So I know that I'm okay. I'm pretty sure most of our listeners are okay as well. But this is one of those cases, Jess, where you simply don't want to leave well enough alone. In other words, you want to lock that door as fast as possible because if you don't, there's no no telling what will happen tomorrow or the day after. Maybe you'll get attacked then. You don't want to wait wait around to find out. Yeah, that's very sage advice, Carmi. I mean, I, I have WhatsApp on my phone. I don't use it uh, all that often. It's been ages since I've actually, uh, you know, had conversations on there. But I keep it because it is a good thing to have just in case as like a backup mm-hmm. messaging service. Um, so even for someone like me, I'm going to probably go after the show and update uh, with the latest version just to make sure that I'm in the clear. Yeah, and and while you're like it's uh, you mentioned something very interesting. It's if you have apps on your phone that you don't use, um, and if you know that you're not going to use them in the near future, you can always remove them. And the reason being is, is an app that's dormant is it provides another avenue for future attacks. And so if you want to minimize the sort of the doors around the perimeter of your virtual house, then get rid of those those doors. Get rid of the apps, and you, you'll be a little bit less vulnerable. You can always just install it for free from the App Store when you do need it. Don't feel the need to carry around too many additional apps on your phone. Also, look at the settings for your operating system, whether you have an iPhone or an Android device. You can go into the settings and set it so that it automatically downloads and installs updates as they're available. Uh, what that does is it means it no, you know, it, it no longer waits for you to do it. It just happens in the background. You'll never notice it. If you have that setting on now, chances are WhatsApp has already been updated and you didn't have to lift a finger. There you go. By the magic of technology, in this case, working for us, not against us. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Very much so. And I, and I think that's, you know, look at the settings um, and follow that best practice. And then you will, you know, the, the potential for you to be attacked when vulnerabilities like this are discovered is minimized. Really not a lot to worry about, but an important reminder that we have to keep our eyes open. Absolutely. Now, someone who's been keeping his eyes open is Chris Hughes, the co-founder of Facebook. And uh, he hasn't been associated with the company, I think, in about 10 years or so, something like that. But he wrote an op-ed, didn't he, in the New York Times, I think it was published last week, talking about uh, the case for breaking Facebook up a bit, having more oversight. Uh, His former partner, Mark Zuckerberg, has obviously gone through the mill over the last couple of years in terms of uh, public image and all the privacy scandals. What was your take on that op-ed? 
Well, it was a pretty stunning piece of writing, especially coming from the guy who co-founded the company with Zuckerberg. For him to turn around now and say it needs to be broken up, Zuckerberg has unchecked power and influence that is far beyond that of anyone else in the private sector or in government. Uh, for him to say that he's disappointed in himself, he's angry at himself that he allowed it to get to this point, that's pretty incredible. Um, you know, it means that he's questioning his legacy and he, he believes that Facebook, which is which he started really just to connect people, is no longer a force for good and it needs fundamental change. Um, that doesn't happen very often in tech. Most people usually don't trample on their own legacies to the degree that Mr. Hughes clearly has done here. Um, but I think he feels that he has no choice, that if he doesn't speak out now, uh, then you know who else will? Who else has that front row seat to history? And who else has the ability to get us talking about whether, in fact, Facebook really needs to change. And I kind of agree with them. Facebook's culture is what's gotten it into trouble uh, to this point. Cambridge Analytica wouldn't have happened if Facebook wasn't such a cowboy when it comes to privacy. Uh, and at some point, someone's got to step up, raise their hand and say, you know what, enough's enough. I thought it was very interesting the way he talked about uh, Mark Zuckerberg's motto, seemingly, from the time that they were just a startup, they wanted to dominate. And I guess the word was domination from Mark Zuckerberg himself. That's what Chris Hughes is saying. Um, and how that he like controls, what, like 60% of the voting rights with the shares in the company. So basically, any decision that's made, like if he wants to change the algorithm, it's him. It's, it's Zuckerberg that's yeah. making that choice. And he talked about how that's fundamentally unimaginable. American to have this kind of uh, domination over one entity like that when it when it covers billions of people who are are tapped into your service and he, he said you know you look at the division of powers you look at the founding fathers of the United States and and they never would have wanted something like that because there are checks and balances in our government system um, you know you can we have a whole other conversation about how the American system is working right now politically uh, but the intent is is that there are always safety measures. Uh, and in this case, he's he's saying that this is that's gone with Facebook and that that's really what he thinks needs to change as well. Yeah, we've sort of been seeing Silicon Valley, sort of the, the tech economy building to this point for the past number of decades. Um, and it really is an example of the technology racing so far ahead of our legal infrastructure's ability to rein it in, to control those excesses, um, that we are literally left exposed to uh, companies that will uh, abuse their rights uh, and abuse our rights in the process. And that's kind of where we're at with Facebook. We're talking about Facebook today and Mark Zuckerberg today, but the truth of the matter is they're just the largest example of of a a process and 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 a, a part of the economy that has really been acting in an unchecked manner for decades. Um, it's just really, really bad with Facebook. But if you look at most other large tech companies, they've been essentially doing what they wish uh, for a very long time and with very few people controlling our destiny. Um, that clearly needs to end. But when you, you know, anyone who watches those congressional hearings where Zuckerberg is called to testify uh, very quickly realizes that we are being led by politicians who clearly don't understand uh, how this technology works, don't, don't understand how that genie has been let out of the bottle. So how do you expect better laws to be put in place when the lawmakers don't understand the fundamentals of this technology? I don't know how this is going to get resolved, but, you know, it's good to have former founders at least raising the issue so we can have some kind of public debate. Will we have laws that uh, that right this ship anytime soon? Probably not. 
That's true. And, and as you said, it's just such a massive uh, issue to, to parse through. And it I mean, it sort of reminds me of to take it way back to the 90s, uh, Jurassic Park, when they said, you know, just because we can doesn't mean we should. Like we, we thought, why not if we can? But with the ethics of, of, of moving this quickly and making these taking these steps, that becomes a problem. Um, Carmia, I think I think we'll leave it there. We've we've touched on a lot of topics. Thank you, as always, for your expert insight uh, into the tech world and uh Everybody, the takeaways are go update your WhatsApp, (laughs) check your settings, and uh, just be vigilant on Facebook, I guess. Exactly. So great discussing this with you, Jess. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, we need to run real fast over to Jacqueline LaBelle in the News Center. Hello, hello, hello. We are back. On London Live on your Tuesday afternoon. So we've chatted about social media, which is always a hot topic, no matter what day we're on of the week of of any month of any year, really, in the last decade. Social media has obviously always been very, very popular in topics of conversation. Something that is also popular is the weather and gas prices. You can never go wrong talking about gas prices and complaining about them because obviously they're a necessary evil we all have to fill up if we're drivers of vehicles, that is. Some of us, like 980 CFPL's Lini Lambrink, they are stalwart bicycle riders uh, whenever possible. Uh, but for the rest of us, sadly, we have to fill up at the pumps. And there's a new survey that's out, and it was done by Nanos on behalf of CTV. And it says that a majority of Canadians say they're worried or somewhat worried about the increasing price of gas. The survey commissioned by CTV News found that 38% of Canadians are worried and 32% are somewhat worried about rising fuel costs. 30% said they are somewhat not worried or not worried about gas price increases. Sometimes survey terminology is really funny. Somewhat not worried. I I don't know how someone would be somewhat not worried. I don't Sorry, we're getting too deep into this. Uh, What we really want is to go through that that survey results and see what Dan McTagg thinks of them. He is a senior petroleum analyst with GasBuddy.com and he joins us now live on the line. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the air with us. Good to be here this afternoon, Jess. Thank you. So I take it you've had a chance to take a look at the results from this survey from Nanos. Uh, what do you make of, of how Canadians are feeling about gas prices here? Well, I think the headline captures what I know to be quite often the case, is that people are very mindful of the cost of energy, in particular the cost of transportation and fuel. And that, of course, most uh, don't just think about gasoline as being uh, part of the totality of the impact on their bottom line, but other prices like diesel, which affects uh, you know every other form of good or service that they might uh, be subject to, uh, everything from uh, the delivery of your stationery to your uh, to the the cost of groceries, uh, as well as the cost generally of producing product uh, here in uh, here in the province uh, and across the country as well. Of course, we've seen some very shocking numbers of late. Uh, just at the beginning of the year. Average prices in Canada were about a dollar a liter. Now, of course, they're much closer to a dollar thirty-one, according to our quite reliable site, GasBuddy.com, um, and that does mean that for most people, the impact has been significant. Uh, not only that, you have regions in the country which have and are experiencing the highest gas prices ever paid by any major city ever historically in North America. And that, of course, I'm referring to Vancouver, where the price is chronically at about a dollar seventy, even a little higher. For a liter of gasoline, 
Uh, and while there are a lot of reasons for that, uh, the reality is that governments are certainly not helping themselves when they're perceived very widely, right or wrong, as uh, contributors to these higher prices for fuel, especially with the federal government backstopping and reimposing a carbon tax that Ontarians had rejected just 11 months ago. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see... Um and as you said, like the, the title really does sum things up quite, quite well that, you know, most people are concerned about it. And I, I, I know that I myself, I, I just filled up, I think, last week at some point. Um, no. But, you know, it's I lucked out. I got a I got a pretty decent price. I think I paid like 116 or something like that when I when I filled up. I got it at a good time. Uh, but I know a lot of people are it's it's sort of what you talk about now when you get together with people like, oh, what you paid last time you filled up or I saw a good price the other day. Like that station is usually pretty good. It, yeah. it really does become a hot topic with people it does and of course uh, we have seen uh, you know here in london for instance prices uh, for gas stations today buying their fuel runs them about a buck 17 to buy their gasoline so at a dollar 15.9 which i'm seeing at some of the stations uh, who are competing with costco um, in the south end uh, it, it suggests that uh, you know we could see prices go a little higher and were it not for the fact that uh, right now the U.S. and China are entering what could be a more protracted and more profound trade war, which could potentially dampen uh, global economic uh, expectations and, and activity. Uh, you might very well be seeing much higher prices than that we're seeing right now. Uh, as well, of course, retailers are really tripping over themselves, um, removing their operational costs in order to keep you happy as a customer. But even at $1.15.9, again, a lot higher than what we saw in December, January, and February, where average prices were a lot closer to $0.90 cents a litre. So there's a lot of moving parts here, and it does mean that uh, affordability isn't just about gasoline, as I mentioned earlier. Think about the cold weather we've had, and that many of us still have our furnaces on. And uh, there's now a new tax added to whether that is propane, whether that is uh, home heating fuel, or whether that's natural gas, you're still paying more than what you're getting back in, in rebate. And many of us uh, are going to have to take a second look at whether the rebates will, in fact, uh, be enough to uh, overwhelm what is now going to be higher prices, not just for the things we use directly, but indirectly, the cost at the grocery checkout, which I expect is going to rise anywhere from 4 to 6% in uh, and towards the second half of 2019, if for no other reason the fact that the federal government has artificially driven up the price of uh, of the commodity needed to transport and make uh, products uh, like groceries get to the store. Yeah, it just seems that it's it's one thing after another, and and I think it's a very uh, astute point about heating costs, and you know, like we have had colder weather, uh, it lasting into further into into May than uh, than usual. Uh, obviously, like I talked about this yesterday yeah. a little bit too, like jokingly that uh, it's it's a bit of a, a roll of the dice in terms of what your weather is going to be like at this time of year. Sometimes it is uh, messy like this; it's not always pleasant. Um, but yeah, like it's it's another line item in people's budgets to be mindful of. And um, people are starting to look for ways to cut back on their consumption uh, in, in a number of ways, right? They're, they're trying to trim the yeah. bill at the grocery store, at the pumps. I know of one person who is in the process of getting a new vehicle and they're switching over to diesel in the hopes that it'll be like cheaper for them because they have to commute quite a distance every day to work. Yeah, and I think that's part of the you know process that is being taken undertaken by every family that's out there. And it's you know it's it's okay for people to go and say, hey, get a new car, but the reality is that cars are built to such a high quality standard that they last ten, fifteen, even twenty years. 
Uh, and of course, they are efficient. If I take a vehicle that's bought in the past few years compared to what was around 15, 20 years ago, they're, they're, it's night and day in terms of emissions mm-hmm. and in terms of fuel consumption. But here's the other problem. Um, where people are in seeing increased prices in energy, they're having to offset by expenditures elsewhere. So that's having a rippling effect, an indirect rippling effect in terms of foregone expenditures. I now have to take an extra $15 out of my pocket a week for whatever reason. Uh, it means that that's $15 displaced and over a period of a year, I'm now looking at, you know, five, six hundred extra dollars, not just because of the carbon tax, obviously, but because the cost of the rising cost of energy generally is leading many people to have to rethink their budget priorities. And that could mean uh, real trouble for discretionary spending in other areas of the economy. People whose uh, livelihoods depend on everything from tourism to transportation could also see, uh, you know, a rather negative setback uh, in terms of where the economy is going and how uh, budgets are, are handled. It's a real ripple effect. You know, one one thing changes, and obviously in this case, significant change with prices. Uh, and it really does, it's a tidal wave of impact along the way, along the chain of our lives, uh, because everything really is connected. Um, well, Dan, thank you so much for your time today and, and for always keeping your eye on these trends and on the numbers and the figures. And uh, well, I'm sure we'll be talking with you again more as these uh, stories develop and as we keep an eye on where prices go next. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me here today, Jess. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Well, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about dental coverage and what Canadians think should be perhaps standard coverage for people, public coverage, if they don't have private insurance to do that. And we're talking with the president of the Ontario Dental Association. All that and more coming up on London Live. Welcome back to the program. It's been a busy show so far this afternoon on your Tuesday. Mike Stubbs, of course, is on vacation this week. I should have mentioned that right off the top of the program. He will be back with you next Monday. Until then, you are stuck with me. As we talk about all the things that are happening in London, around the world, across the country, everywhere. If it's interesting, we'll try to get to it. Uh, So next up, we have... An interesting survey. Again, uh, this one was done by Ipsos for Global News, which is our parent company. Um, And it's talking about what Canadians think of a public coverage system for dental care. So the survey found that about 86% of Canadians would support providing publicly funded dental care to those without insurance coverage. And that's according to the opinion poll. It found that around a third of Canadians are currently not covered by any dental insurance and that dental care in Canada typically, this is what I was learning today doing a bit of research for this story, uh, typically care here in Canada is provided by a patchwork of charities, private plans and government-sponsored programs that typically target low-income families. Many countries across the developed world use a similar multifaceted model, but Canada's coverage rate of about 70% lags behind. That's interesting. 70% might sound pretty good, but when you put it in comparison to other nations who have higher numbers, hmm, maybe we are apparently behind the eight ball. Joining us now on the line is Dr. David Stevenson, the president of the Ontario Dental Association, to give us his thoughts, his take on uh, the survey results. Dr. Stevenson, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today about this. Absolutely, Jess. It's a pleasure. So this study that came out from Global News, and it was, uh, uh, I guess, facilitated by Ipsos, has found that about 86% of Canadians would support providing some form of publicly funded dental care for those without insurance coverage. Uh, Are you surprised by that uh, finding from the study? 
Um, I'm not surprised, Jess, and I'm actually quite pleased. Uh, you know, as a as a, a member of the Ontario Dental Association, we've always felt that uh, the government does need to to, to step up and, and provide assistance for uh, a group of our population that very much need of, uh, of dental care and dental services. The, the vast majority of Canadians uh, do have access and can access dental care, and Canada is very fortunate to have uh, a very good network of healthcare uh, for dentistry, and also we have uh, when one compares us to other countries, we have very good overall dental health. But there is a group, uh, whether it be low-income individuals, whether it be children, uh, uh, people with special needs, Indigenous people, that are not getting access to the care. And so the government, uh, the fact that the government should come in with targeted programs for these people is something we've been a long-time supporter of, and it's actually it's very pleasant to hear that Canadians are in agreement with that. Yes, I, I was happy to see such a high number as well in terms of support for it. Um, it, it seems, um, you know, I guess when I was very young, I've always been very fortunate that as, as, a, as a child, a dependent upon my parents, like we had great coverage in terms of our insurance uh, for dental care and I never had to worry about going to the dentist. It's honestly one of my favorite annual appointments because I've, I've been very lucky that I've never had problems, had braces as a kid. So I'm very used to going for dental checkups and things like that. Um, but when I found out that others, you know, as I grew older and, and became more aware of, of issues around me, when it wasn't a, just a given for people, I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's, I mean, it's a serious thing. Like, if you don't keep your oral health in check, uh, it can lead to much other serious, more serious problems down the road. Absolutely. And it's so important. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you have, have enjoyed going to your dentist. And it's true that most of my patients are like that. Uh, Jess, I practice in a little town called Carlton Place in the Ottawa Valley, and uh, I live and practice in the same town. I walk to work, so I know my patients quite well, and they know me. And it's very true that while the majority of them uh, have good health care, good access to the dentist, I do have patients that do not, and, and we need to see them, and we make effort, we, every effort we can to see them. There are current government programs that exist that help these people, but at the moment they're not funded to a level that even covers the cost of delivering care. So they need to be they need to be improved. The investment that the Ontario government needs to make into these programs is 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 much needed, uh, and that goes including uh, as you may know we've also had a, the announcement with the last budget of a of a new seniors dental program. Uh, but as I say, currently we have programs in Ontario that, to try and help some of these individuals, um, but at the moment they're not funded properly. And I see that every day in my practice. It must be distressing as, you know, as a medical professional to see people who are trying to make those decisions in terms of uh, what to, you know, put their put their hard-earned money towards in terms of their own care for themselves. It's it's heartbreaking because people will often uh, neglect themselves in those those things that they shouldn't uh, because they're they're making tough choices in other areas of their lives. It's it must be very tough as as a professional like yourself to to see people making those choices. Yes, it is. And it's also tough on the community itself. Um, you know, when people cannot get access, uh, a line I like to use is when you need to see a dentist, you need to go see a dentist. And when people can't get access to that, they end up going to the local hospitals. They end up going to the local emergency room. And there they're not getting, because they may be in discomfort, they may be in pain. 
and there they're not getting proper dental care. There, there are very few hospitals that are actually equipped to deliver appropriate dental care. So when, what happens is one will go to the emergency room, you'll end up getting a prescription for an antibiotic, a painkiller, uh, and, and the problem has not been addressed, and the problem just gets worse. So if we could, if we could have programs in place, properly funded, that would enable uh, the, the people in, in the communities that need to get access to care. It would enable them to get diagnosed, get treated uh, uh, before the problem becomes more severe, before the problem becomes too painful. Because just the longer you wait, the worse the problem can get. And even if one relates that back to the government, on a, I mean, we understand the need to control costs, but it is far less expensive, far less costly to prevent dental problems, to treat them early, than it is to wait for them to become more severe problems. And again, if one is having to go to the emergency rooms, it, it, beca- it compounds the problem. One, it increased costs, and two, uh, the patient isn't getting proper care. So it's, it's, it's far better when they can get into my office. My office is no different than many of the offices around the province who, who look after these people and have been helping these people for a long time. Absolutely. And, you know, your point about, uh, you know, dealing with things early on, so uh, like a toothache, go and get it sorted out first as it is still just a toothache before it becomes, you know, like an abscess or other other issues that progress and, and lead you to need further medical care. That is because that will be a strain, as you've said, on the system as a whole, uh, whereas it could Correct. just be nipped in the bud right away. So that's excellent points Absolutely. by you. Absolutely. And it's, it's even better, Jessica, you can get in before you have a toothache. If you go to see your dentist regularly, and you even mentioned it earlier that you enjoy going because you probably go frequently and uh, you're told about how well you take care of your teeth. So it, that's, that's the real point is to be able to have programs in place that are properly funded and, as I say, funded to the level that uh, accommodates the cost of delivering care uh, and so that people can get in and we can prevent these problems before they get get to become big problems. Now, this question, you may not have, uh, you know, an exact answer to, Dr. Stevenson, but is there like a a rough timeline that you think that this could be possible in? Do you see this uh, within a few years that we could implement something like this? Or, uh, you know, what do you think is is possible in terms of making this a reality? Well, I think in in making this a reality, there has to be a, a, a big step forward in making the commitment of what is actually going to occur. The timeline is very difficult because every province across the country has different programs in place. And as I say, we already have programs in place to help a significant number of people. We need more programs. We need to enhance those programs. So that timeline could be fairly quick if it was a matter of, 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 of investing in the current programs to the level uh, that covers the cost of delivering care. As far as bringing in a seniors program, like the province has announced, the timeline they're talking about is 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 in summer of this year. Uh, but that what they've described is that that care is only to be delivered by public health units, and there's not really currently there's just not enough. They don't have the capacity to do that. Uh, and even if they were to build buses, I think they said that they were intending to build buses by winter of 2020. Again, that, that's a very aggressive timeline on the government, uh, from the government side. And, uh, you know, it's also that part, although I commend the government, Ontario government, for, for understanding the need for a seniors program, you know, there's already a lot 
there's already over 5,000 dental offices in the province that are already caring for these individuals. And I know for myself, Jess, if, if, if the patients that I've been treating and seeing for 20, 25 years, if all of a sudden they had to go to a public health unit, uh, the closest one is Ottawa, which is already overtaxed for the services that they provide the community. And the next is Brockville, and it's just not going to happen. So this is a time where this is an instance where the government has has developed a program, but in all honesty, they could have done better. And when I said at the beginning that they need to make a commitment, the government needs to make that commitment. The dental associations, we have the expertise, we have the knowledge to help them. Uh, develop the right program with the right care for the right people. And that will take time. That will take time. But there are some steps that they can do very quickly, and that is properly fund the, the existing programs they have. So the timeline will stretch out over a long time, but there are things they can do right now very quickly. Well, fantastic, Dr. Stevenson. I think we'll we'll need to leave it there for today, but it's been a pleasure talking with you about this issue and, and finding out how we can maybe take a bite out of the issue of uh, lack of coverage of, of dental care for Canadians. And we thank you very much for your insight today. Oh, Jess, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. When we come back from news with Jacqueline LaBelle, we are going to be talking to the CAA about Slow Down and Move Over Day. Welcome back to London Live on 980 CFPL Global News Radio. It's Tuesday afternoon, the second day of Mike's vacation. He is away this week. He will be back on Monday. Until then, you have me. And we are talking about a variety of different issues that are hitting home in London, also across Canada, around the world. This next topic uh, is going to be, I guess, one that impacts people, almost everyone, basically. If you've ever been on a on a highway... <laughs> or a 400 series specifically, you know that it is very busy out there. And you also understand the dangers for people who are pulled over at the side of the road, be it our first responders or tow truck drivers or anybody else who has to be over on the side. It can be pretty dangerous out there. Now, there's a lot of messaging about the importance of getting out of the way of people who are on the side of the road so that they stay safe. But the CAA is upping the ante, and they have introduced uh, a new day and it's called slow down and move over day and today is the first inaugural annual day joining us on the line to talk about it is Teresa De Felice the assistant vice president of government and community relations at CAA South Central Ontario Teresa thanks so much for joining us today to talk about uh, the CAA's new campaign my pleasure so tell us a little bit about uh, the idea of slow down and move over day, because it's it's messaging that we've heard previously, but it, it is one that can never be heard enough, this message. Well, I can tell you that uh, many of the tow truck drivers uh, who are serving members and the general public along the side of the road know that although the message uh, does get out there, it's not enough because uh, today's campaign is really about reminding drivers that it's actually law to slow down and move over when it's safe to do so to give roadside assistance workers a safe place to work. And it's one of those things that's uh, usually very easy to do. Uh, you know, often if you're if you're driving, uh, you know, proactively and, and uh, you know, just being a defensive driver, if you will, you're scanning the horizon. You should be able to see up ahead that there's something going on because tow truck drivers and emergency crews, they always have their lights going when they're when they're off to the side. So really, it, it shouldn't be a difficult task for people to to do this. 
No, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, what we find is that people may see something up ahead, but they're still getting along with their day. And sometimes they're looking towards the incident, which often is uh, the situation that results in drivers actually getting way too close and in in terrible instances, either injuring uh, or worse, getting fatalities with uh, people who are working on the side of the road. So, you know, really, when you see those warning lights or the flares are up or the pylons are out, that's a sign for you to go into a different mode, which is drop your speed. If you can move over a lane, uh, if there's a lane to do so and it's safe to do so, it is actually by law required that you do so in Ontario. I can only imagine the stories that CAA workers have, uh, you know, in, in some of the literature that was, uh, you know, um, sent out by the CAA ahead of ahead of this campaign. It talked about one individual story, a, a man by the name of Andrew McDonald, and he was actually hit at the roadside while responding to a member call. And it just must be a terrifying moment for anybody, whether it's an actual crash that takes place or a near miss. Uh, it's It's, I mean, they see their lives flash before their eyes, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. You know, there are countless stories every day. Uh, you can peruse, you know, various social channels, and, and some, of, some of these workers are taking, you know, videos of what's happening and how close the vehicles are getting to them. In Andrew's case, uh, a vehicle did actually uh, clip him and didn't even notice that they sent him flying uh, in front of his vehicle. So, you know, this is a, a very dangerous job. You know, sometimes we take for granted. We work in buildings with exit signs and have emergency evacuation plans. But when your job is on the side of the road, if you're a tow truck driver, uh, police ambulance, uh, you know, fire, it is, you know, with traffic, especially on, on GTA highways, or you've got traffic going pretty fast by you, it is something that uh, you have to live with every day and, and go into your own defense mode to keep yourself protected, but also the, the people that they're trying to serve on the side of the road. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's uh, anyone who has driven around the GTA in London, often if, if we're going elsewhere in the province, uh, the 401 is going to take us through that busy uh, section of, 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 the, of the highway. And there's a ton of traffic in and around the GTA. It can be very stressful driving. Uh, and so it's easy, I think, for people to uh, sometimes forget their best practices and the best things that they can do because they're often concerned about just getting through that GTA section uh, or other parts of the, of the, of the highway. And, you um, you know, they just want to get to where they're going, but it, it really, it just takes a second to slow down, think about what you're doing, and and really, you know, put your thinking cap on. Absolutely, and this is why CA, you know, does a number of public education safety, road safety campaigns, but today across the country, all CAs uh, are casting a, a light on this particular issue, and, you know, just like anybody who's trying to get to where they're going, these people who are on the side of the road, the tow truck drivers who are serving people on the side of the road, you know, first of all, those people don't want to have broken down in such a scary situation. Um, but, you know, the, everybody just wants to get home at the end of the day to, to their families, uh, to their homes, and be safe. And so it really is a call to motorists to recognize that there is a law in Ontario that requires you to, at the very least, slow down. And if you can, please move over. Give roadside workers uh, an opportunity to be safe and get home to their families as well. 
certainly it makes uh, you know all the sense in the world and uh, just you know going through some of uh, like I said the literature that uh, was compiled about about this this campaign a stat that really has stuck out to me is is that since 2014 the OPP has laid more than 9,000 charges against drivers who haven't moved over and or slowed down when they could and it's it's just blows my mind you know that that those are the figures we're dealing with here it really kind of hits home the importance of of making sure that we're all doing better out on the roadways because those if you think about it that's 9,000 opportunities that someone could have been uh, seriously hurt or heaven forbid killed absolutely and this is you know in north america nearly 100 drivers tow truck drivers are killed every year Uh, this is a very serious issue and it really does require everybody working together uh, a for the you know the roadside workers and the you know emergency workers to to be safe but it really does require the motoring public around them to think about their safety too focus on you see the emergency ahead but that that's a spark for you you know to think about what you need to do and that first step is slow down again move over i mean we, we can't get that message uh, across enough uh to to get people to understand in ontario it's a minimum $490 fine and three demerit points upon conviction uh, if you are uh, given one of those tickets and caught not not abiding by the law. So really, if nothing else, and sadly, it, it, it does come down to our pocketbooks sometimes in terms of what really makes the most of an impression on us as to our behavior. But if if nothing else, I mean, you should be more concerned about people's health and safety. But if nothing else, think of your wallet in, in terms of just slowing down and moving over. It's a very simple fix. Absolutely. And there's a new piece of legislation that's uh, a government right now, provincially, that actually will classify and put uh, roadside assistance workers and, and tow truck drivers uh, specifically uh, same category as um, a vulnerable road users. And so if somebody is injured or, or there is a fatality involving a roadside worker, uh, the, the fines, uh, if this legislation passes, and we believe it will pass soon, um, actually increases those exponentially. So there's uh, minimum jail time terms, uh, in, even in increased fines. So, you know, if people do it voluntarily, they don't have to worry about that stuff. So that, that's our message today is get into the habit of slowing down and moving over and giving people a safe place to work. Absolutely. Well, fingers crossed. Uh, the the work of the CAA and this day specifically will help speed up the effort to slow down and move over, if you will. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this very important initiative. Much appreciated and thank you. I need to take a quick break, but when we come back on London Live, we're going to talk to the author of a new book called Save Your City, How Toxic Culture Kills Community and What to Do About It. That's coming up on London Live. Welcome back to the program. My goodness, show number two is just flying by. We are already at 2.20 in the afternoon on Tuesday. It is a beautiful day outside, though. I will say that much better than yesterday. We are improving as the week goes along. Now, something that is not improving these days seems to be civility. Whether it's online, we only have to look at the Twitter feed of the U.S. president for evidence of that, or in your day-to-day interactions with people, it's a topic of discussion, how we are perhaps missing compassion in our day-to-day interactions with people. And, you know, there are a lot of reminders on social media about be kind, you don't know what people are going through, that, that sort of messaging. Now, my next guest is Diane Kalansutra, and she is an author, speaker, 
veteran community builder and award-winning municipal CAO. She has a lot of experience in terms of making communities better. And her book that she's just putting out there is called Save Your City, How Toxic Culture Kills Community and What to Do About It. She joins us on the line live with more. Diane, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today about your new book. Thank you, Jess. So tell me a little bit about what this book is all about, because it almost feels like a bit of a uh, a hand guide for uh, municipalities and communities in general going forward, because we are in interesting times politically and socially, and we do seem to be losing a little bit of civility. You're absolutely right. And, uh, well, I decided to write the book because as a community builder who's worked across Canada for about two decades now in various capacities, whether it be the public, private, media, and uh, for, for almost 15 years now in the local government sector, it's given me a perspective that we have a widespread problem. I mean, like anyone uh, working in a particular field, you want to make an impact, you want to make progress. And I see in so many ways we're actually backsliding. And much of it is because of this uh, rising toxicity that we see everywhere from the public square to workplaces, uh, to schoolyards, and ultimately even our, our local governments. And one of the challenges is, is that um, people often feel when they're experiencing toxic environments that what they're experiencing is unique, that it's, you know, they personalize it, they think it's just an isolated pocket. Um, but my message in the book is that this is a uh, widespread problem that if we do not attempt to address it in a concerted fashion, uh, no one's coming to fix it. And so uh, it seems that the challenges are becoming greater by the day, at, and particularly at this time when we need to address them, our capacity to collaborate and innovate together is actually being undermined. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it is uh, in, uh, it's kind of a wake-up call uh, also to citizens about the magnitude of the challenges that are facing local governments and ultimately communities, because there is a lot of confusion about various levels of government and who's responsible for what. And we really have a tsunami of pressures uh, facing local governments that is going to require all of our involvement to uh, resolve and part of what your book looks at is that broad range of issues that are facing, especially the, the local level uh, of government. Uh, you know, we're talking about homelessness, different social pressures. Uh, how do you see a path forward for, for municipalities to come together and, and to work uh, to find solutions to those issues? Well, ultimately, there are always solutions where people come together with the right mindset, with a, uh, a sense of well-being and shared purpose. There is all there are always solutions to those problems. The challenge, however, is that we're facing epidemic levels of depression, anxiety, social isolation, loneliness, mental illness, addiction, and and this us versus them toxicity that makes it really difficult to come together and solve those problems. So, the um, what I'm trying to do is in indicate to people what are the effects of this toxicity. It actually ultimately erodes trust, um, not only in each other, but also in our, in our institutions, which affects our democracy. So the key is to um, focus on this culture risk in order to bring the broadest range of voices to the table and, uh, and to begin to solve those problems. And it is actually uh, quite serious when it comes to our democracy. Um, 
fifty percent of Canadians feel that their public institutions are failing them. Seventy four percent feel that uh, a sense of injustice about it, and yet all of the um, this toxicity is affecting the diversity of candidates that are coming to the table because the less socially secure you are, the less likely you are going to subject yourself to the politics of the snake pit. And so, what this is a call for all of us to take a pause and to become very intentional about the type of culture that we're um, ultimately. Uh, fostering in our communities. And local governments, uh, for better or for worse, um, are ultimately uh, responsible for that process. You know, every society has a socialization process that prepares people to uh, have the values, the character, and the skills in order to function well in that in that society. But a toxic culture is fundamentally anti-democratic because it has the as its foundational uh, appetite this idea that might is right, and uh, that forms a kind of a tyranny that makes it impossible to look forward towards. It's interesting that you talked about, uh, Diane, how, I guess, a culture of whether it be a municipality or just the way the political system works, it does uh, keep certain players out of joining the game, if you will. As you said, they don't want to join in that snake pit. I mean, there have been studies uh, and, you know, uh, different groups who have looked at how women don't want to necessarily enter the political realm as much as their male counterparts because of the type of discourse that goes on there. They feel like running for offices, uh, subjecting themselves to personal attacks, and it's just not the type of environment they want to be in. So I, I definitely identify with uh, you know what you've what you've said about uh, a lack of diversity in, in candidates sometimes who are entering into the race because certain groups just don't want to put up with it. It's it's so true, and it affects the, you know the number of by elections people do try and uh, muster the courage to run, and then they realize that the human cost is just simply too great, and and they and they drop out. Um, you have a lot of places where we have election by acclamation, and you also have an incapacity to process and deal with uh, you know like amalgamations and, and sort of loss of local democracy that's taking place um, everywhere. And so it does it does have a serious cost, and it's not helpful that you know uh, oftentimes we. We like to uh, we say the problem is a simple problem. Oh, it's just social media, or it's just the, the U.S. headlines. Or, uh, but I, I can assure you that even if we didn't have social media, that this instability problem is far deeper than that. And um, we are facing tectonic shifts in our in our local economies, uh, displacing people, and uh, the very way in which we've become accustomed to do things. So the only way for us to begin to resolve them is to bring everyone to the table to remember that we all belong. And to go back to our roots, um, as a, to foster that democratic ethos that says that you know we don't have uh, this is the first form of government that is in human history where we don't have a, a master. The master is each other. We serve each other in government and as citizens. And without that engagement, uh, we're simply not going to be able to solve the problems that we're facing. You know, it's and I also wanted to say that it's important that, as communities, that you know, community culture actually exists on a spectrum. I'm not saying that everywhere, everyone is facing a fear-based, toxic community, but if, but it's important to understand where we actually stand on that, and uh, to overcome our sort of sense as Canadians that you know our self-perception is that we're peace-loving, uh, tolerant people, and so sometimes it's hard for us to uh, to look objectively on the on on the culture that we actually face, and. and 
and to begin to restore ethics to all human relations. So that includes uh, politics, workplaces, and the schoolyards. We've also had a decline in the type of civic education and values uh, that are necessary to, um, to, to found our, our political and economic system. It's interesting, you know, that you talk about um, how, how I guess, we have that, that toxicity that some, can sometimes, uh, well, is creeping into our institutions and also the lack of faith in the institutions in London uh, in the last year and a half to a year. Uh, we had a, a big internal review. We had um, an independent review, I should say. A law firm came in and after a, a slew of allegations of um, harassment and bullying within municipal departments, they did this big review to try and uncover and unearth and shine light on everything to try and start, I would say, you know, not to get too uh, flowery with the description, but the healing process of of helping to move forward because there were a lot of claims of uh, mistreatment within municipal departments and it seems like there has been a recommitment to moving forward and doing better. Uh, and it, it's, I, you know, it, it creeps into everything, though. Like you said, it's, it's not just in government. It's on the schoolyard. It's in all of our relationships. Uh, and that lack of trust also in our government institutions, the, the stats that you gave there, Diana, are, are quite telling. And I think if you look at uh, public reaction to, say, the SNC-Lavalin case and uh, God knows all the headlines that come out of the states, as you referenced, yeah. there are a lot of... Um, shifts, as you said, in terms of our our social values and, and how we view those institutions uh, that traditionally the belief was they were there to, you know, make sure life was going to be okay. And now people really do seem to have lost a lot of faith in it. And yes, and the, the process that you described taking place in the city of London is, is an incredibly important first step. I mean, they've uh, become very conscious of the magnitude of the problem and are not afraid of publicizing it. Um, and I can assure you that these problems are not unique to the city of London. They are taking place everywhere. In the city of London, they are um, hitting uh, headlines, obviously. Um, but the truth is... Uh, Municipal governments don't exist outside of of uh, society. In many cases, we are inheriting this toxic culture, and it's perpetuated. And so, it is incumbent on all of us within our spheres of influence to do what we can to actually change it. And and in some cases, it's important to even just to understand the magnitude of the cost of that type of um, bullying and harassment uh, culture. It paralyzes um, operations. Obviously, it affects civil service delivery. The human cost is immeasurable. And just think in terms of the costs of investigations, uh, settlements, sick leave, disability, all of these things. So an incredibly important first step is uh, understanding the scope of the problem and then beginning to change the very way we think and operate. Because if we continue to think and operate in the same way, the problem is not going to be solved. And and to understand that it's going to take all of us together, recognizing that we're um, actually part of one family, that we are uh, building, you know, it, it, Wherever you are, no matter what uh, process you're engaged in, whether it be media or local government, there is a purpose why you're there. We're engaged in collective projects. And if we focus on the purpose and we respect our basic dignity and humanity, that is the fundamental democratic ethos that we treat each other as we wish to be treated, that we operate with a duty of care towards each other, then we can eventually uh, change, change that culture and move more towards a values-based, you know, purpose-driven, uh, servant-based leadership. Because we've got to remember, at the end of the day, community building is a human-centered project. And, and in my book, I go back all the way to classical antiquity, and I try and share some of those uh, values. Like Socrates said it best 2,500 years ago, what is the point in battleships and city walls unless the people building them and the people protected by them are happy? 
I don't think anyone could have said that better. <laughs> That's it's. I mean, you know what? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That uh, that saying it rings true all these generations and millennia later. So, Diane, I think we should leave it at that point because I think you've hit the nail on the head with that. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about your new book. And really quickly, if people are interested in picking that up, where can they get it? Well, there's an edition specifically, an exclusive edition for local government folks available at municipalworld.com. And uh, for citizens and community builders, uh, there's an edition available at all major booksellers online from Amazon, Chapters Indigo, Barnes & Noble. And, uh, but saveyourcity.ca is where all the information can be found. Fantastic. Well, Diane, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And now to the delayed news because of me, to Jacqueline LaBelle. Good afternoon and welcome back to London Live on 980 CFPL Global News Radio. We are just clipping along here this afternoon with our programming. Next up, we have a discussion about this fantastic group and resource that's online. It's called Bullying Canada. And they are, you can reach them at uh, bullyingcanada.ca. And what they do is they are an online resource for kids across the country who are going through tough times. If they're being bullied at school, bullied at home, if they just need someone to talk to, uh, kids can reach out and give this, this organization a call. They can text them, they can email them, and the group works with them to find a solution to what's going on and what's troubling them. Now, the group has a a program that it's looking to recruit more volunteers for and to talk about that process and the uh, the program itself, which is called SMS Buddy, and it's all about texting. I have PJ Ryan on the phone. He's the Director of Public Relations for Bullying Canada. PJ, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Bullying Canada and this new program that that the organization is putting out the call for a little bit of assistance with. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. PJ, just to start off, in case people aren't familiar with Bullying Canada, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the organization itself? Because it has quite a, quite a lengthy history. Absolutely. So Bullying Canada was founded in 2006 um, to give a resource to uh, victims of extreme bullying right across Canada. Um, since then, we've launched a 24-7, 365 phone support service, email support, um, have given thousands upon thousands of workshops in schools and for local organizations across the country, and have built out a resource network for the youth. It's pretty amazing. And, and when it started in 2006, um, it, it's cool that it was started by two individuals who themselves had experienced that bullying. And so they really had a firsthand understanding of what kids going through this uh, need in terms of support, eh? Absolutely. Um, Rob Benfernet and Katie Thompson knew, um, went through this and actually created this while they were still kids um, themselves to help others going through situations that they themselves had to go through and to make it a little bit better for the next people down the line. 
Absolutely. And uh, doing a little bit of research before I chatted with you, um, I, I went onto the website and took a look at the history and, and I guess sort of uh, the layout of how the organization works and in terms of the contact that it has with individuals, uh, kids who are being bullied. But it's not just the children, it's their families, the uh, alleged bulliers themselves, also in some cases school boards and uh, police. It's a very in-depth process that can last anywhere from a couple of weeks up to a year. So uh, it kind of shows the level of commitment that Bullying Canada has to this uh, to this movement, if you will, to, to try and stop this behavior. Absolutely. It goes far beyond the anonymous counseling offered by most other charities in this space. Um, we have a few hundred highly trained volunteers that provide support, um, mediation. Um, they work with problem solving, unfortunately, sometimes suicide prevention, to identify these problems and actually solve them, to stop the bullying in its tracks and prevent it from reoccurring. So we'll talk about the specific issues with the bullied youths and everyone involved, local resources, etc., um, with the end goal of ensuring these bullied kids feel safe and get the care that they need to heal. Um, so we'll remain proactively involved for however long it takes. Now, something that the whole reason for, for why we're, we're chatting today uh, is because there is a facet of Bullying Canada's programming, that in-depth contact that they have, which the organization is looking for a little bit of assistance with in terms of bringing in new volunteers. And it's the SMS Buddy Program. Uh, for anybody uh, who, isn't, who isn't, I guess, up on the lingo of SMS, that's text messages, correct? Absolutely. So one of the things that we always strive to do is meet youth where they are. Um, And that's more recently for this age demographic, text-centric rather than just on the phone or with longer messages via email, et cetera, that like one-on-one real-time conversation via text. Um, And this really actually allows youth in more remote parts of the country with maybe less stable internet services to get in touch with these resources and get the help that they need um, because you don't need a data plan for it. It's all just on the cellular network itself. Um, And it's just something that they feel a little bit more comfortable with. And some of the feedback we've gotten has indicated that, you know, sometimes they don't want to risk being overheard talking about these sort of sensitive issues and they can, it feels a little bit more private to them, especially when they're, you know, around their peers or around their family. Um, it gives them just that additional level of comfort, which really helps to make them feel safe. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking that very thing, that the ability for kids to reach out even in the moment when something is happening to be able to send a quick text and, you know, have that privacy, like they're covered, no one's going to hear them as they talk about this. But it it does really let them uh, reach out in real time, as as you've said. So the call then from Bullying Canada is that we're hoping to draw in more volunteers to, to help answer those messages, right? Absolutely. So we have an incredible roster of volunteers who help provide these services now, um, but the demand is just rising faster than we could have anticipated. And in order to make sure we can provide that support as efficiently and quickly as possible, um, we need a few more a few more hands at the helm to, uh, to help us make that happen. And if someone's interested in volunteering, it's a really simple process. They just go to our website, bullyingcanada.ca forward slash SMS and fill out a relatively short application form. 
Um, the only really hard and fast requirements are that they be of the legal age of majority in their location and that they be willing to undergo and successfully pass a federal criminal background check. Um, once that's all complete, we will review the application, um, get them into our training system, and get them ready to go. We just ask they be willing to do at least two two-hour shifts a month, just so that way they kind of keep up their skills. Um, it's one of those use it or lose it type things. Um, yeah. It sounds like it's, you know, uh, what a fulfilling thing to be able to do in, in terms of helping kids who are struggling. I'm sure that there are a lot of volunteers uh, or people out there who have experienced bullying themselves uh, who would, I think, maybe find this a bit cathartic, you know, like be able to share their wisdom and what they've learned from going through this process themselves, um, whether through the guidance that they may or may not have received from Bullying Canada in the past or just, you know, life lessons that they've learned. I'm sure it would be a very uh, fulfilling um, endeavor to, to sit down and, and talk with talk with young people who are struggling and, and be able to help them work through those feelings. And, and sometimes, you know, it can be very, very difficult for, for people going through that. And uh, whether you're a kid or even if you're a little bit older and, and you run into tough situations. So everyone can benefit from talking Absolutely. to others who they trust, you know? Yes, and that's one of the main um, things we consistently see in feedback from the volunteers is you know, many of these people donate their time for a variety of organizations, but this particular thing they find exceptionally rewarding because they get that sort of direct, immediate feedback that they're helping someone one-on-one, and they can tell the difference they're specifically making rather than something that's maybe a little bit more of a broad picture. Certainly. And it's interesting, you know, how, how you mentioned, PJ, earlier that uh, this has kind of taken off. Like you knew that, that it would be a kind of a popular thing, but the demand for services uh, is kind of outstripping, you know, the current levels of, of, of volunteers that you have. I suppose it's a double-edged sword. The more we learn and the more we talk about these issues, the more it draws people out to seek assistance and help, which is a wonderful thing. But then we run into situations like this where uh, you need to, I guess, boost the troops very quickly, your numbers. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, on average, we receive just over a thousand requests for assistance a day. Um, and the really hard thing about that is not dealing with those individuals. It's knowing that because it is so hard to reach out for support or help, that there must be so many more going through it, but going through it alone and maybe without the resources that could help alleviate their situations. That's true. Well, hopefully this chat today and uh, the work, the good work that Bullying Canada is doing will draw in some more volunteers and they'll be able to reach even more children and young people who are uh, going through a tough time and and would very much benefit from having a chat with the volunteers and the organization. Well, PJ, thank you so much for your time today and sharing more about Bullying Canada's story and this appeal. Hopefully we get some more more people calling in and, and going online. Thank you so much for having us. And if you are interested in taking part in Bullying Canada's programming, if you want to volunteer, or maybe you're looking for a little bit of help for a loved one or you yourself, you can give them a call 24-7-365 at 1-877-352-4497. That's 1-877-352-4497. You can also email them at support at bullyingcanada.ca. 
Now, another group that's working to help kids in our community, and I mentioned them before, they're helping through pizza. And it's Pizza Nova. Today is their 20th annual That's Amore Pizza for Kids Day. And it runs from 11 this morning. So hopefully you've already, maybe you've already gone by and and got some pizza for lunch. But guess what? It goes until 9 tonight, which means pizza for dinner. You can get a medium pepperoni pizza for $4.39 plus tax, walk-ins only. And you can only do two per customer. So maybe, you know, bring a couple of friends so you can all get some pizza. And a dollar from every pizza sold goes to Variety, the children's charity of Ontario. So make sure you go and check out our friends at Pizza Nova. They brought us in some of their pizza today. And it is delicious. Delicious. I kid you not. Go and check it out. And you can't beat that. $4.39 for one pizza pie and a dollar goes to charity. So please go check out our friends at Pizza Nova. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back on London Live after this. Welcome back. We are at the very tail end of the Tuesday afternoon show. Hard to believe that two hours has just zipped on by. We've been busy the whole time. Now, before we leave... I wanted to tell you this funny story. This came up in the newsroom yesterday, and it's it's pretty cool. It's one of those moments where people come together. You may be at an event, and maybe you know some of the people there. Maybe you don't. But something happens, and it kind of bonds everyone together. Well, you could say that a wedding got that bonding moment courtesy of the Toronto Raptors. So I'm going to... I'm going to put my newscaster hat back on. I haven't had it on for two days. It feels strange. So I'm going to read this story to you. Hopefully I don't make any mistakes. Here we go. At an Ontario wedding Sunday night, at least some of the love was reserved for Kawhi Leonard. A woman attending the reception of her sister-in-law's daughter says many of the 500 guests, holy cannoli, first of all, that's a lot of people, uh, 500 guests were quietly checking their phones for updates on the Raptors' final playoff game against the Philadelphia 76ers. Dolly Cambo says one of the MCs probably noticed this, which may have been what prompted him to air the final few seconds of the Game 7 matchup. He connected his laptop to the projector in the reception hall and broadcast the game mere seconds before Leonard sunk a buzzer beater game-winning basket. His shot, which bounced around the rim four times before going in, helped the Raptors win the game 92-90 to and move on to the Eastern Conference Final. It was quite the moment, folks. I can confirm I saw it. Campo says all the wedding guests went nuts after Leonard's shot, mobbing the dance floor and taking the celebrations to a whole new level. The Raptors' next playoff round gets underway tomorrow when they take on the Milwaukee Bucks. I love that story. I think that's so much fun. And kudos to the MC of that wedding. I've emceed one wedding so far. I'm doing another one this summer with my best friend for another of our best friends who's getting married, Sammy and Casey. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> and uh, I can tell you that emceeing a wedding is a delicate business. You have to, you know, keep in mind the wants and needs of the bridal party, the couple who is is getting hitched. Uh, and also, you know, you have to be good at time management, keep everyone in line, which can be more difficult as as I have learned in doing this talk show <laughs> both last summer and this, this week. Uh, I'm bad at math, folks. So <laughs> interview times and I love to chat. Being bad at math and loving to chit-chat is a bad combination. I can do that math, and it adds up to disaster sometimes. So <laughs> when you're emceeing event, events, you really do need to uh, keep all of those factors in mind. I do a lot of that through the station, and it's always a lot of fun. Love getting out and meeting people. But kudos uh, to this wedding MC who kept people in mind. He gave the people what they wanted. 
They wanted to know what was going on in the basketball game and timing is everything. And he flicked on that game right at the right time because that shot was pretty amazing, I have to say. And I'm not even like a big basketball fan, but I mean, there are just those moments that kind of transcend whatever it is, whether it's a sport, a sporting event or uh, like a cultural event. There are just those moments of suspense when it comes together and people just lose it. Like the outcome is amazing. It's a one in a million shot sort of a thing and people just bond. So I think it's really neat that they were able to do that. Enjoy that very much. Now, not not really a one in a million event in terms of the fact that it's been going on all day, but it is very important and I want to make sure we give enough airtime to pizza. Pizza for the children. Think of the children. It's important. And if you know what's you what you need a better excuse than getting pizza than children? Like you're looking it's Tuesday. You're already into your week. You're tired. You don't want to cook dinner. Don't do it. Don't just don't do it. Don't even look at the stove. Leave it alone. Close your recipe book. No, don't look. It's for the children. If anyone gives you a hassle about it, be like, I'm doing this for a good cause. So what you need to do is go see Pizza Nova. It's for their 20th annual That's Amore Pizza for Kids Day. I just love saying the name. It's so much fun. And until 9 o'clock tonight, you can go in and get a medium-sized pizza pie, pepperoni pizza, for $4.39 plus tax. And a dollar goes to Variety, the children's charity of Ontario. And it's walk-ins only. You can only buy two pizzas per person for this deal. So get a bunch of your friends and head on over and buy some pizza pies from Pizza Nova. That brings us to the end of our show. Thank you to all our guests and, of course, my excellent producer, Andrew Graham, who is keeping me on track. News is up next with the wonderful Jacqueline LaBelle. We will see you all tomorrow.